0: Revelation 14 is an interesting passage because I believe it is a summation, chapter 14 is a summation of what's um, going to happen in the immediately following part of um, the book. And so, we uh, um, it's almost like Revelation 14 is the summary, and then Revelation 15, 16, 17 begins to give the details. Uh, a place that it is similar to in that way, literature-wise, In Scripture, it's something that happens at the very beginning of the Bible. If you remember Genesis chapter 1, what happens in Genesis chapter 1? Creation, right? God speaks and creation happens. What happens at the end of Genesis chapter 1 verse 27? And it says, God created man in His own image. In our own image, we created Him. Man and woman, we created them, right? Right? And so you have this picture, and if you just take that, that that's all that there is, then it seems like God just said, boom, there's a man, boom, there's a woman. Alright? But is that what happened? No. How do we know that's not what happened? How do we know what happened in creation of man and woman? What's Genesis chapter 2 about? Genesis chapter 2 is the expansion of that. So what I'm saying is, Genesis one twenty-seven is a summary statement. God created man, God created man and woman. Genesis chapter 2 then expands what that means. So we find out that God gets the dust of the earth and He forms man and He blows the breath of life into him and Adam starts naming the animals and what happens? He doesn't find anything that that makes him feel that loneliness. So what does God do? He gives him anesthesia, puts him under, (laughs) performs surgery, right? What does it say? It says... He went into a deep sleep and God removed a rib, alright? Sounds like anesthesia and surgery to me, alright? And so when Adam wakes up, the first thing he says is, Whoa, man, right? Woman, that's what she is, right? And so that's how it's created. Well, I think Revelation chapter 14 is that kind of summary passage for what's going on. And what we've had throughout Revelation are some summary passages, and then the details of what that means. And so tonight it's going to be a little more um, summarization, but there is some discussion here about what's going on. Okay, um, Martin Luther, uh, by the way, uh, wrote uh, or gave a sermon on this particular passage back in 1876 and the title was The Harvest and the Vintage now in some ways that's true because it's a harvest at the beginning like a harvest in a field and the second part is a harvest of grapes and so it is a vintage but the question is this is the question are there two harvests that happen here are the two harvests One harvest, described two ways. Are they two harvests, one of which is good and one of which is judgment? Or are they two harvests, one of which is judgment and the other is judgment? Here's what we know. The second one is bad. I'm going to read it and you tell me when I get through why you think it's bad. Chapter 14, verse 14. We're going to look at both of them. I looked and there before me was a white cloud and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Anybody ever used a sickle? Yeah. Right? He's swinging. I from huh? I from you. <laughs> so you used the sickle. Yeah, right, Randy. <laughs> Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud. Take your sickle and reap. Because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. Just a little note for you. The word there means actually overly ripe. Past ripe. Alright? So he who was seated on the clouds swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Uh, The emphasis there, by the way, is on sharp. Sharp. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vines because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grape and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city and blood flowed out of the press rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1600 stadia which is a little over 180 miles. Right. So how do we know the second judgment is bad? Because of what? The blood. How much blood is there? How how tall is um, up to the horse's bridle? Somebody somebody said today. Well, it depends on how big the horse is. For it's yeah the, the typical in this day. We have to re- we have to remember that in this day everything was shorter. The average male height was about four and a half feet. Jesus was probably between four and a half and five feet tall. Uh, Yeah, we've we've grown up, so that's we have to remember that. So for them, it would have been shorter things. So it would have been three and a half to four feet probably, which to them would have been shoulder or mid head high. Okay, so that's pretty deep in blood, right? And how many miles did I say? Remember, 180. 180. It's actually 184, but who's counting? All right. So 184 miles of blood that is four feet deep. So that's a lot of blood, right? So that's massive judgment. So whatever else is happening in this passage, one of the things that's being described is a massive judgment of God. Now the question is, what's happening in verse 14 through 16? Now I saw this chart by the way, we're going to do this um, kind of at the beginning, because who is responsible for all this happening? What happens in verse 14? Who is that? that was Jesus. It's Jesus, right? I look before me, and on, seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. Jesus' favorite description for himself was Son of Man. He's riding on the clouds. He's got a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Um, it rhymes. Um, what we have here has all of these descriptions from the Old Testament in mind. When the high priest even asked Jesus in Matthew 26 if he was the Messiah, you remember what Jesus told him? He said, You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. This picture was a reminder always of what it looked like when judgment was coming and when Jesus would return. Now, I want you to uh, compare something with me. First Advent, first the second Advent. Okay? So the first time Jesus came, how did He come? He came as a baby. He came as a baby in humiliation. He came poor. Uh, One of those little bits of of, uh, Scripture that gets overlooked often is when... His parents went to the temple. They only had what was required of a poor person to give as a sacrifice. So he had that. Alright? So he's poor. He came, what was his mission when he came? Amen. Yeah, to save sinners, right? Okay? What was the ultimate goal when he came? The cross. We just talked about Easter week. They came for the cross. He came, someone has said this, as a sower. Remember, he tells the parable of sowing seeds. He talks about doing all that. And then he came in grace. Alright, now let's think about the second advent. Is he coming as a baby? No. In fact, he will come as a warrior. It's an interesting thing. Um, The crown that he wears is a crown of a victorious warrior warrior. Not the crown of a king, but of a warrior. Does He come in humiliation? No, no He comes in glory, right? Does He come in poverty? No, no He comes in majesty. Does He come to save sinners? No. What does He do? He comes to judge. judge sinners. Does He come for the cross? He comes not to a cross, but on a cloud. Does He come sowing? He comes reaping. Does He come in grace? No. He comes in wrath. In fact, this last image has become one of the most famous images from Scripture. It became the image of a John Steinbeck novel, uh, The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, It's uh, in a famous military... Hymn. That's not really a military hymn. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the, the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. Right? So that's from this passage of Scripture. Now there are other references in Scripture to it. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more in a minute about the grapes of wrath and the vintage and all of that. But I just want you to see that. When Jesus comes in the cloud, He comes in a different way than He came the first time. And the emphasis here is on a couple of things. Whether you take that... And I'll tell you where I... I well, I may not, because I go back and forth. I'll, I'll tell you the arguments behind the two things here that can be convincing you to weigh. Whether you take this as two separate judgments, one good, one bad, two separate judgments, both bad... Or one judgment described two ways, the points are the same. The point is, he's coming, and when he comes again, there's not going to be second chances, and judgment is coming. There's this, I mentioned this a minute ago, there's this really interesting dynamic in here that the um, harvest is overripe. The idea there is that it should have already been harvested. So why has it not yet been harvested? Either A, the church hasn't done its job, or B, that's God's merciful grace postponing. One of the things that's here is this idea that God is giving... Every opportunity to people. You have that passage in Scripture that says God's desire is that all men would come to know Him and that the Lord is not slow as we think of slow, but He is patient with us because He desires that each one might come to know Him. And so this image here, now think to an agricultural society how impactful it would have been to think Of an overripe harvest. Why in the world hadn't they gone and got that yet? You ever had something that you know should have been done already? Let me ask you this. You ever been married and let's just say the wife asked the husband to do something and he postpones it Day after day, a little bit gets put off. Never, never happened to you guys, but follow along with me. They do that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and every time, (laughs) and every time the wife walks past whatever it is that needs to be done, verbally or non-verbally, it's communicated. Mm -hmm. In the time you go ahead and do that, all right. It's tax season, right? And some people still haven't finished their taxes. And it comes next Tuesday. And it's just out there lingering. Right? Well, the idea here is John is communicating that the only reason that it hadn't already happened and this was he was communicating to people in the first century is because God is allowing it to go a little farther past. We talked about a few weeks ago um, the uh, TV shows or the thrillers or the suspense things where the bomb goes down to point zero zero two seconds and you think, how in the world are they going to stop it? And they cut the cord. Uh, the uh, How many of you saw the new Mission Impossible this summer? Anybody see that? In the new Mission Impossible, Randy and I actually saw that together. It was Randy's birthday present that I went to a movie with Randy and his entire family. Uh, and we, what a sacrifice! What a sacrifice! So we—he uh, made me. We, I even paid for my own ticket. I didn't pay for his, but I paid for mine. That was often nice of me, wasn't it? But in Mission Impossible this year, they took it to the the limit. They they got to the button and they pushed the button, and it had already the bomb had already lifted off the nuclear missile. And it's like, oh. Now what are they going to do? Oh, we can disarm it in mid-air. So at the very last moment, they disarm it in midair. Alright? Well, it's like God has allowed, through His mercy, it to get overripe. But at some moment, Jesus is coming on a cloud, and He's bringing a sickle with Him, and the harvest is going to happen. And it will be... Too late. Okay? Now, we think of a sickle as a bad thing. Now, why is, what is the most prevalent image of a sickle in our society? Grim the Grim Reaper. Right? I mean, because we don't use those anymore. I mean, if you have a farm today and you're using a sickle, you <laughs> are way behind the tops, right? You're riding in a buggy. You're Amish, right. So, we don't think of sickles in that way. We think of combines being the harvesters, alright? Sickles, we think of death. But for them, a sickle was a very useful tool. That's why there are a lot of people say, Hey, that first harvest isn't necessarily judgment. That's just God gathering what's His. The, the sickle would have been the tool that was necessary to harvest. Here's the thing that also is imagined here. Nobody ever doubted when you walked down a path and the harvest had been taken. Because a sickle is not a real fine instrument. How do you work a sickle? You take it, you swing it. Barbara, here's uh, the first in the first service, and four o'clock told us that she found one and uh, some stuff she was cleaning out the other day. she's gonna bring it. I said, you bring it? I'll just wave it around here. They said you don't have anybody ever sit on the front row. And so, uh, so just, it, but when it did, especially a sharp sickle, when you swung it, what happened? Cut. Stuff went down, and nobody walked by. And thought, I wonder if they've harvested that, <laughs> right? They knew, and so the point there is that it's coming. It, there's no getting around it. Um, Joel 3, through thirteen, by the way, says this: Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come go down, for the winepress is full. So in Joel you see both of those images together. People that see this as uh, two separate bad judgments often say that the first of them is the seven bowls that are about to come and then the second is Armageddon, as Cliff's already said over there. That's coming a little bit later. But what we want to see is what, no matter what perspective you take on that, we can learn some things from this passage. First of all, that it's inevitable that it comes, and that it comes from Jesus. I mean, you see, he looked, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man. Um, The white cloud Son of Man has a background in Daniel chapter 7. I was watching the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancients of days and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. The white cloud symbolizes glory, majesty, dazzling brilliance, heavenly splendor, unearthly purity. There's not a cloud for all to see. Revelation 1 7 says, Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, and they will, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Son of Man in verse 13 uh, reminds us of Jesus' favorite title for himself during the time he was here on earth. The golden crown, as I mentioned, is a crown of a victor, of a conqueror. It's not the crown of a ruler. The crown of a ruler was a word diadema, which we get diadem from. The crown of a victor is Stephanos, which we get Stephen from. It's a crown of victor. The sharp sickle would have been a razor blade attached to a long broomstick like wooden handle. It occurs seven times in these verses. The point is, it's coming. And then you have this fourth angel in the chapter that comes. He comes from the temple with a loud voice and he tells them that it is dried up fully, overripe, even withered. The grain is ready to be go. The day of grace is past. Your opportunity is gone. The point is, there will be a point of no return. Now for those of us that are believers, we look at that and should feel confident in what Christ has done that we're okay. But we all know people who aren't. Now one of the things that John is going to continually say throughout the book of Revelation is, and use words to describe, A, God's people will be protected, And it's our job to tell people about the gospel. And so regardless if this is God's people being harvested or if this is the first judgment, the point is, judgment's coming. If it's God's people being harvested, that just means that the next step is the judgment of the wicked. If it's the first judgment started, it means that judgment has started. And there's nothing else to do. God's wrath comes from Jesus. God's wrath comes on time. The ministry of mercy is over. Sowing has ceased. Judgment reaping has come. There will be no tomorrows. Verse 17 and following tells us not only is it coming, but that when it comes, it will be a certain wrath. The vision John sees before this is the grain harvest, and it moves to the grape harvest. Now many people think this is our first view of Armageddon. And what we see here is that when divine judgment comes... There will be no holding back. Of the three pictures of judgment in this chapter, the unmixed wine cup, the grain harvest, and now the grape harvest, this is the most dramatic and striking. Now verse 20, will bear that out when we get to it in just a minute. But what we see, first of all, is that God's servants act with the divine Authority. The fifth and sixth angels in this chapter come up in verses 17 and 18. They come. The fifth angel, like the fourth, comes from the temple. He has charge of the sickle. The sixth one comes from the altar. Now, the altar of incense. What was happening there? Does anybody remember what was happening at the altar of incense? What was the incense that was rising at that altar? The prayers of the saints. So the idea is that Jesus is sending out this judgment, but it's also coming as a response to the prayers of the saints. So when we look at this and think, I mean, because it is a little sickening to think about four feet, 180 miles of blood. If we're doing what we're supposed to do, this is a part coming from us. The desire for the judgment to occur. The fire there would symbolize holiness, purity, and judgment. The thrust, uh, send in, to put in, and it's fully ripe again. It's, it's at its peak. It's ready for harvesting. The earth and its wickedness, evil, and rebellion is ripe for the picking. Now here's what they give the picture of. The trampling or stomping of grapes. Now can I tell you something that makes this passage difficult for me to get the worst part of it is because when I hear trampling or stomping of grapes, you know what image comes into my mind? Lucille, Lucille Ball. And right? And the I love Lucy's show. Some of you think I'm too young to remember that, but you remember you remember that episode? She and um, Ethel. Ethel are stomping those grapes, alright? And so for me, when I read that, I thought, well, that's Lucy, what's so bad about that? Alright, but in their day and time, they would have been very familiar with this. Grapes were trampled or stomped by foot in a trough that had a duck leading to a lower trough where the juice was collected. Treading grapes in a wine press was a familiar figure of divine wrath and judgment. John MacArthur says this, The splattering of the juice as the grapes are stomped vividly pictures the splattered blood of those who will be destroyed. Now think about it for a minute. You know what it looks like when you crush a grape. I've never had the opportunity to stomp on grapes. But I've seen other pictures than Lucy. And you can imagine what it looks like to have those grapes crushed and the juice just flow out. And that is a picture of what the wrath of God will be like for those that are unbelieving. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes as Americans, we have real trouble with that thought. But Scripture teaches and life teaches that there can be no justice without justice. The thing you could say over this whole thing is you reap what you sow. Now, we have to be careful with that that we don't turn Christianity into a straight karma religion. Because that's what karma says, right? What goes around, comes around. Um, Some of you probably have seen the story of Bobby Petrino. And I I really don't want to see what comes out after this, because my guess is it's going to get worse, what the details are. But if you don't know Bobby Petrino, is Bobby Petrino was a coach of the Arkansas Razorbacks until yesterday. He's a guy that about uh, three years ago... Was a head coach in the NFL and decided in the middle of the season he won't do that anymore and left a note in every player's locker because of my respect for you, I can no longer be your coach. And was introduced the next day as the Arkansas Razorback coach. Now, a lot of people said that was classless. You know, those players didn't deserve that. He left them without a coach in the middle of the season. They were still trying to make something out of their season. Well, Mike Trino got caught in an illicit affair with somebody he hired on the football staff, a 25-year-old girl. He's a married father of four in his 50s. He got fired yesterday. And some of the things you're hearing on the news right now is what goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. Now, that is a biblical principle. You reap what you sow. But here's the difference in the biblical understanding of that and just straight karma. The difference is, we don't all reap what we sow because of the grace of God. If we reap what we sowed, we would all be in this bloodbath. But God's grace and mercy means karma isn't always right. Now that doesn't mean that that as a general principle you still don't reap what you sow. And the point here is, for those of us that have decided to turn their back on God, they will reap what they have sown. But it's at the hand of God, not at some mystical universal principle. So to be careful how we say it, but that's what's here. Is this one of those things wow, that we should take literally, or is this? You talk about the. I'm talking about the blood. To here's God. here's what I, here's what I my answer is I don't know. Here's one of the things I think he's saying, um, and this is actually I was going to get to the end, but I'll get to now, and so I may have to find, may take a second to find a note on it. Uh, Josephus wrote about you know who Josephus is. Um, Josephus is. Uh, a Jewish historian. He's one of the places outside the Bible that talks about Jesus and his teacher and the claims that the disciples made that he had risen. And uh, we get some information from him about uh, some things that happened around there. He's a Jewish historian, very well respected. Um, in eighty seventy, when um, in eighty seventy when they uh, when Rome came in and destroyed Jerusalem the blood in the streets was so much that it put out fires in people's homes that's how much the blood ran in the streets so in some ways John when he says that their minds are going to go back to the stories they've heard of that and John's description would have been three to four times worse than that and so do I I don't know if, I think that it's going to be very bloody. I don't know if you can take a measuring stick out and go, well, this is not all the way up to a horse's uh, bridle here. You know, over here it is, but 164 miles down the road it's not. Okay? It's just symbolic in that way, but it's going to be very bloody. It'll be lots of destruction. Um, The blood will fill the troughs and stream beds of the valley. Of Megiddo, and here it talks about it'll be a terrible day of vengeance. Now, this isn't the first time we hear of this kind of winepress description. Isaiah 63 I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I've trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my gardens, I've stained all my robes. For the day of the vengeance is my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. In Lamentations 1.15 The Lord has trampled underfoot all my mighty men in my midst. He has called an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord trampled as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. Joel 3.13 Put in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come go down for the winepress is full. The fats overflow for their wickedness is great. There's this also just something that's kind of in here it's at a time when they think that everything's pretty good that the judgment really comes the wine presses are full in Joel even in this the harvest is plentiful the wine is plentiful but what they don't realize is judgment is coming and so you have this urgency even among God's agents in what they're doing Um, and then you see it's complete we talked about this Just the sheer size of it. About four feet up to a horse's bridle. 1,600 stadia, 884 miles or so. Most commentators say that it's hyperbole, suggesting a massive, unimaginable destruction. Okay, Um, So it's not that they think you'll be out there with a measuring stick. But the point is, when God's judgment comes... when we get to verse I mean chapter fifteen, we're gonna start with the seven bowls and then we're gonna to get to Armageddon. And so I think chapter fourteen is just introducing us to the fact that judgment will come and we need to be prepared. I saw a statistic from about ten years ago that asked I I used, by the way, I used a statistic in the second service last week that Rasmussen reports said that 77% of Americans still believe Jesus rose from the dead, which is a pretty astonishing number when you really think about it. We don't have 77% of people that claim to be Christians, but 77% of people believe they they think Jesus actually physically rose from the dead. And and the culture that tries to tell us over and over that's impossible, that's amazing. Uh, Another statistic said that 40% of people think the world will end with Armageddon as it describes in the book of Revelation. Um, That's from about ten years ago. That that number has probably gone down. And part of the reason it's probably gone down is because of all these failed predictions of the end of the world that Harold Camping has made and come December the Mayans have made. Those kind of things. But we must never lose sight of the fact that it doesn't matter how many people believe it or how many people get it wrong... It's coming. Today God speaks in grace. And we are living in a time of grace. We can offer that to people. We can tell people about it. Soon, He'll speak in wrath. Today God speaks in mercy. Soon He will speak in judgment. The harvest is near. The reaping is about to begin. God help those that aren't ready. God help those that aren't prepared. Because only by His mercy... Will people be saved? Now, this comes, but this judgment comes after all these other things, right? So, this is just what's left. Well, this is the kind of the final thing, yeah. Well, you remember, and everything. yeah, and you remember, I keep drawing this diagram, but you had the seven seals, and then in, in the seventh seal, you have. The seven trumpets. And in the seven trumpets, I believe you have the seven moles. So if you think through that, we are actually still in the seventh seal. You see what I'm saying? I mean, the seventh seal is all of this. And so it's when this happens, this is what happens. And chapter 14, I believe, is most specifically talking about this, but could be talking about this. That when that final time comes, it's time. You remember when we got to the trumpets and they said, and when the trumpet sounds, the end is here. It's, it's over. And so it's not like, you can't think of, you can't think of Revelation as a chronology. You can't think of it as what year one, two, or week one, two. You have to think of it as a literary book even you know, when Alan taught, he jumps back a little bit, talks about uh, in symbolic ways, Christ's birth and different things happening and the dragon in heaven and the stars leaving heaven. and all the, If you try to figure out the timeline, you're going to drive yourself nuts. But it, it is talking about... So this whole thing is talking about everything that happens. And it's not unreasonable to assume that there will be so much going on that you won't be able to keep track of it all. It's, you know, I mean, when God comes again... It's going to be in this kind of pattern. But then when that opens, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. And so uh, trying to figure out a chronology is not there. But we are... I think when we get here, we're at the end. Now, it takes us... And we have to think, too, it's taken us six months to go through this when it takes you 20 minutes to read it. Right? I mean, we're stopping every moment. uh, So...